Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing next weekend's Western Australian state election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Jacob Kagi. Jacob is a state political reporter for ABC News in Perth. Hello, Jacob. Hello, thanks for having me. My second guest is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. So last week, Liberal leader Zach Kirkup demonstrated how dire his party's prospects are when he publicly acknowledged that Labor would win the election as an attempt to limit the size of the anti-Liberal swing. Uh, This is a remarkable thing. You don't usually see this kind of thing in politics, and it does reflect we have seen at least one poll from News Poll that gave Labor 68% of the two-party preferred vote and is suggesting that they are likely to build on what was already a pretty solid and decisive result in 2017. Jacob, does this statement by Zach Kirkup reflect the general tone of the last few days of the campaign? Look, it certainly reflects what people have been expecting. So I suppose, you know, when he said the Liberals aren't going to win, no one was shocked by that statement in terms of it coming as a bolt out of the blue in terms of, you know, everyone thought that that was correct. Everyone thought that the Liberals weren't going to win by that point, that it was going to be uh, a Labor landslide. Obviously, what was so unconventional about it was, you know, uh, a, a leader in effect raising the white flag with 16 days to go before there'd even been the election debate, before he'd even launched his campaign. So that was what was certainly fascinating about it. Uh, and now it is the the Liberals' main campaign point, by far their main campaign point, trying to say, Yes, we know there's going to be a Labor government, but you need to elect as many of us as possible so we can form uh, a proper opposition and, uh, you know, prevent Labor from getting an upper house majority. Um, So that has been, you know, sort of the dominant topic of the campaign uh, since Zach Kirkup made those comments. Um, Obviously, it's, you know, it's frustrated a lot of his own MPs. It's, uh, It's raised plenty of eyebrows in the public, but... You know, the Liberals thought they needed to take a a pretty extreme risk given where the polling was at. Uh, Whether it helps or whether it backfires, I mean, we're only going to know that on election night, really, and even then, uh, it's hard to ever know for sure. Uh, But look, it was uh, certainly didn't come out of the blue in in terms of both where everyone thought the race was at and even with the the rhetoric that Zach Kirkup was was, uh, making beforehand. He'd started talking a few days prior about you know, uh, don't give Labor total control and that sort of thing. So uh, a doubling down of that strategy in a lot of ways. What is the Labor Party doing? Like, are they are they making promises? Are they are they kind of going in for the kill or are they kind of sitting on their laurels? The, the Liberals have attacked them as running a small target campaign. Of course, Labor rejects that. But you're certainly not seeing significant, ambitious, different policies from Labor. It's, their strategy is around, you know, going with the government that's kept WA safe during COVID. COVID is by far the dominant issue in this campaign, obviously. Uh, interstate border policy and things like that just absolutely front and centre of the campaign. So, so for Labor, it's much more about, you know, uh, running a campaign around stability and strength rather than coming out with really bold or ambitious new policies. Having said that, though, they are... Uh, targeting and campaigning actively in seats that you really uh, not long ago at all would have thought of as uh, the Liberal Party safest. I had noted that, um, yes, there's lots of uh, marginal seats that the Labor Party can be campaigning in and would hopefully 
Uh, some of those northern uh, suburb seats, they would be hoping to pick up the extra seat here and there. But I remember seeing, um, was it the news poll suggesting that the Liberal Party would be reduced to two seats. I actually don't see that happening. You know, I don't see seats like Churchland's um, disappearing across to the Labor um, side. I don't see um, Nedlands, Riverton, Bateman would be hard seats to win for the Labor Party. Certainly some of them are, you know, areas that you would never expect uh, the Liberal Party to, to lose. And then, of course, there's you know, a whole series of, of rural seats where you would definitely not see a Labor candidate necessarily get up. I mean, people like Nick Catania, a former Labor member, um, are pretty much rusted into their seats. Same with Redmond and a few others. That said, you know, uh, when um, Brendan Grills lost his seat, uh, people were a little surprised. So, you know, certainly shocks are possible. But I actually would have said, you know, the Liberal Party is going to struggle they're going to struggle to maintain their seats currently. They will lose a number of the marginals. Labor should hang on to all their marginals um, relatively easily. Uh, I think there will be some fallout from federal politics into seats like Swan Hills. Um, the uh, level of angst about Christian Porter you know, um, and the seat of Pierce is certainly going to have some impact there. Um, exactly how much um, the... You know, the uh, surrender running up the white flag will have. Uh, it has been used before as a tactic, saying don't give them everything, uh, and that does galvanise some people. Uh, we some people go, oh, it's true. Whether it affects them in the lower house, I'm not sure. The upper house could be a really interesting game. I mean, that's a separate question, but that could be the really interesting game, in fact. Yeah, Jacob, how much... Is the upper house a topic of conversation in terms of the campaign? You know, the uh, uh, as we discussed in the last episode, uh, there's a bit of a conservative bias in the upper house. And so Labor, even Labor and the Greens collectively don't currently have a majority in that upper house. Um, yeah, is that is that a, a major point of conversation? Yeah, it, it has been quite a significant point of conversation. Until 12 months ago, you would have said it was completely impossible for, for Labor to get an upper house majority in WA, which takes an unthinkable amount of the vote for that to happen. Having said that, if they got 68% of the two party preferred vote, about 60% of the primary, well, it would be pretty hard for it not to happen. Honestly, uh, they would go, uh, at, at the very least, they would go very close to um, uh, to, to getting uh, an 18, uh, getting the 18 seats or the 19 seats they need, uh, and at, at the very least, uh, at least have a working majority with the Greens. So. Look, that's something uh, the Liberals have campaigned around quite heavily, saying, you know, if Labor gets a double majority, they'll go too far, things will go uh, over the top. Labor insists it isn't possible, that you know, the mathematics of it are just too hard with the rural waiting uh, that, you know, traditionally advantages the Conservative parties. But, I mean, if they're actually getting about 60% of the primary vote, which is what that news poll suggested, then Labor's a very good bet to pick up four seats in the East Metro region, might get a chance to get four in South Metro. And, I mean, there's a difference as well between uh, Labor getting a majority with the Greens, as in the Greens having the balance of power, as opposed to Labor governing, a, like having a majority in their own right, right? Like it would take one vote for Labor plus the Greens to have an absolute to have a majority. And my understanding is to make any constitutional changes, they would need 20 votes because they would lose the president of the other house and they don't vote. So 
you need two extra votes. So getting those extra two to reform the upper house uh, seems quite uh, plausible. It is a harder task to see Labor achieving either a, a basic majority of 19 or a, or a uh, constitutional alter, altering majority of 20 um, in their own right. But, you know, we who knows what might happen in the current circumstances. Yeah, that's right. And look, the, the Greens are supportive of upper house uh, reform as well. So it is uh, very likely that in one form or another, if the two parties between them can get folks um, that is something we'll see happen uh, within the next four years. One point Labor has tried to make is uh, any gains they make are likely to come at the expense, expense of the Greens. And, and to an extent, that is true. But I mean, you know, like I was saying before, if Labor really is getting about 60%, uh, then there might be, the, you know, it's not impossible that Labor gets four up and the Greens get one. And uh, these upper house regions have six members each. So if, uh, like what you were saying, is if there's a region where the Greens are getting one and Labor's getting four, that only leaves one left for the Liberals. The Liberals are sort of looking at different regions differently. I think in a, a region like East Metropolitan, which tends to vote, more heavily to the left, you know, they've only got one seat at the moment. They're only expecting to have one after this election. Uh, there are still there is still room for losses though in North Metropolitan at the moment, uh, which you know includes Perth's western suburbs, traditionally the strongest liberal areas. Uh, the Liberals have three at the moment, and they're cautiously optimistic they'll hold on to two, but not even you know when you talk to them, they're not even that certain about that. Apart from COVID, which has obviously been a big part of it, uh, what are the big the big promises, the big policy proposals that have that have dominated the discussion. It's been an extremely strange election in terms of just how much COVID has dominated. Nothing that's not really uh, a continuation of things that already had in the works. For the Liberal Party, the very big one was their green energy policy. So uh, a proposal to shut down coal-fired power stations in WA by 2025 and move very heavily to green energy. Obviously not the sort of policy you would uh, expect from the Liberal Party given uh, where the federal discourse has been over the past decade. But uh, that's something their new leader, Zach Kirkup, has banked very heavily on. It's annoyed plenty within his own party. It's annoyed people in the uh, coal mining town of Collie, uh, which of course would be pretty heavily impacted by uh, coal-fired power uh, stations shutting down. Uh, as for whether it's a vote winner, I mean, it's been very heavily attacked by Labor. Uh, it's something the Liberals have uh, started to really distance themselves from almost at points in the campaign. Zach Kirkup had his uh, campaign launch uh, earlier this week uh, and the green energy policy was mentioned for, for literally about two seconds. They came out very strongly on it a couple of weeks ago and copped a bit of backlash and they've, uh, you know, Sort of in terms of new policy ideas, that's been by far the dominant one. I find it quite interesting that the that a the green energy policy was put forward given uh, the um, the direction um, coming from the Liberal and Nationals uh, in the rest of the country, uh, particularly in the eastern seaboard. Therefore, it was a, a relatively bold attempt, I think, to try and you know shore up some votes in seats like South Perth or in Churchlands, or for that matter, even in Netherlands. Those sorts of seats where they would be worried, and certainly where they've been worried previously, about, you know, doctors' wives. You know, one only has to remember the Liberals for forests. So you can almost see it as a sort of, I will do this, 
Um, we don't necessarily have to carry through, and maybe it won't be by 2025, or maybe it'll be about putting money into renewables. Having watched what's happened in South Australia and realised that actually here's a way for business to actually step in, a different form of business from what has been happening, but one to also paint yourself as somehow green. But, of course, that has had the logical backlash that suddenly doing this um, has put them at odds with potential voters in you know, a small number of seats like Collie, the seats in the Collie region, not just from the coal-fired power station perspective, but also from the mining perspective. So it puts them at somewhat at an odds with their that mining constituency they've been trying to build. So it has been an interesting policy to see them come forward. Uh, how they would cost it, how it would work is quite another question um, that I haven't seen a lot of policy detail on. I think it would be one that you would want to later come through and say, oh, how are we going to manage the workers who lose their jobs, you know, both in mining and in um, in the power generation itself? Because, of course, there's a flip side to that, as we're seeing in the eastern states, that some of the old power stations are getting very close to being at the end of their life. And so there would be a need for a new power station. If you could avoid that cost, you know, perhaps put it into something else, it's quite a clever policy. But I can totally understand when J- uh, Jacob was commenting on, uh, you know, it's been getting a lot of flack from their own side, as it were. Yes, this would be a policy that you're going, oh, Matt, perhaps the time had not quite gotten here. What we need is, you know, an outgoing Labor government to be just getting it in and then reap the benefits like South Australia, like Martian and South Australia has essentially done. Election night will be next Saturday night. Polls close at 6pm WA time. That's 8pm in Queensland, 8.30 in South Australia and 9pm in the southeast of the continent. Um, No one is expecting this election to be close, but there will be things to watch on the night. Uh, Jacob, what will you be up to on election night? Yeah, look, so I'll be in the um, on the ABC's uh, panel broadcast uh, in our Perth studio. But I think, you know, in terms of what I'll be watching, uh, the, the key thing, uh, the biggest talking point uh, really is the seat of the leader, Zach Kirkup. It's an incredibly marginal one, uh, which he only just won uh, four years ago. Now, he faces an enormous challenge to hold on to that. Um, you know, the, the polling is pointing to, you know, if it was anything like 68, 32, two-party preferred, well, that's a 12.5%. Uh, well, that's a, you know, a double-digit swing uh, to Labor. So, you know, when your margin's under 1%, it would take something awfully dramatic to hold onto your seat uh, with something like, you know, with a statewide swing like that. Really, it's got to the point now where, uh, as incredible as it should be to be talking about a leader losing his seat, it hasn't happened in WA in decades, uh, it's almost just got to the point that that's uh, accepted. It's almost become, uh, you know, the discussion has turned uh, elsewhere. You know, that's kind of how the race has been seen. And, you know, Dawesville's probably one of several seats uh, Labor's very confident of picking up. You've got, uh, you know, Darling Range, Hillary's, Riverton, Geraldton, even Scarborough and Kalgoorlie. That's territory that Labor thinks is really uh, right for picking. Uh, then, the, the interesting battleground, and it's still surreal to talk about it as an election battleground, are those really blue ribbon seats. Uh, so, uh, you know, Bateman, South Perth, Nedlands, uh, they're all around an 8% margin. Now, Labor's been keen to talk down its chances there, but, you know, there are some Liberals worried. It's it's extraordinary to talk about that those sorts of seats like they're in any danger at all. And, you know, it's 
there's still every chance the Liberals hold on to them. But, you know, the fact that they're even a discussion point really is, you know, it shows where this race is at quite incredibly. I think what Jacob says is, is quite right. Those those would be the key seats to look for. Uh, I would still be relatively confident. Uh, here, here we go, doing, political scientists doing what they shouldn't do, which is making predictions. But I would still be relatively confident in the Liberals hanging on to those blue ribbon seats, even if it's really you know, quite marginal in terms of you know the, the seat outcome at the end of the day. Um, simply because there's such a strong well of, if you like, liberalness in those seats. What I'll be particularly interested in is how the the votes for other parties hold up, so the minor parties. And I'm not just thinking here that, that in terms of the National Party. I think their vote will still hold up. But I'm actually thinking in terms of uh, the Greens, where will their vote go? What will happen to One Nation? Will the Liberals collapse help One Nation or will it hinder them? Will people think, I can't vote for One Nation, I better go back and vote um, for the Liberal Party or the National Party? And then any of the other minors, what is going to happen with them? So that might actually give us an indication of what might happen in the upper house. Um, If the Green vote is badly depressed by Labor, then we will expect to see that in the upper house. And that's when the green seats and the legislative council might come under threat. And certainly, if small and minor parties actually benefit from a collapse in the liberal vote, I'm not saying that would necessarily happen, but if they did, then that would be a precursor to thinking actually they could do very well in the upper house. Uh, and that could open up you know, the lottery system that we saw in um, the federal parliament after the 2016 election, Um, which would make for a very interesting time for um, McGowan and the the government if they didn't actually take that majority straight off. So I'll be looking at those primaries for the other parties, uh, as well as looking at, you know, where are the marginals, what's the primary, if it looks like the Labor Party is going to romp it in 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 their, in not just their marginals, but Liberal marginals, then maybe start to look at some of the seats like Bateman. I think that they should pick up Darling Range, they should pick up um, Hillary's, they should pick up. Those seats are relatively straightforward. Geraldton has been a, a Labor seat before, like Kalgoorlie's been a Labor seat before. These are the kinds of rural seats that they can win. Um, maybe uh, I, I look to see how the Green candidate, um, I've forgotten the first name, Pigram, in um, uh, the northwest seat, Kimberley, um, simply because it's a, a really interesting campaign that's being run there. Will it have some impact? will have no impact at all, and we have this Labor juggernaut. It'll be quite interesting to see how those minor parties perform. And I thought it'd be useful for me to run through a bit like what some of those seats are for the different categories because I kind of have four different categories of seats that if if these seats are close, it tells you something about where the state of the race is. Obviously, different seats might swing in different directions and that's entirely possible. So there's a couple of really marginal Labor seats like Joondalup and Kingsley and Jandicott. and if, you know, if they're at all close, then probably that's actually indicating that the polls have overstated things and that it's not that the election will be close, but maybe Labor is on track to kind of stay where they are or maybe even go slightly backwards. Um, then you have like Dawesville, which is Zach Kirkup's seat. Uh, you've got Hillary's, uh, Riverton, maybe even Geraldton, which is a bit of a messy seat. Uh, those are ones that are genuinely quite marginal. The Libs didn't hold them by very much at the last election. If those ones are close, yeah, we're looking at maybe a small swing 
to labor, but not a complete wipeout. And then the ones you listed some of these before, Jacob, but uh, Nedlands, Bateman, South Perth, they're about 8%. You've got Kareen, Churchlands, Cottesloe. Those seats are over 10%. You know, uh, Cottesloe is the second safest liberal seat in the state. And my understanding is uh, someone who doesn't know a great deal about the geography of Perth, Churchlands, Nedlands, and Cottesloe in particular, they form kind of a core in the kind of inner northwest of Perth, the very wealthy heartland seats. They've tended to be seats that are held by party officials, like held by uh, party leaders or senior ministers and things like that. Traditionally, you know, for people in other states, they'd be the equivalent of like the lower north shore of Sydney or the inner eastern suburbs of Melbourne or something. So if those seats, Nedlands, uh, Churchlands, Cottesloe, are in play, that's the kind of scenario where you might be looking at close to a wipeout, right, that the um, Liberals could end up with two or three seats. Uh, And this is before you get into the Nationals. Yes, I think you're correct. The core Liberal seats, though, are also available for high-profile independents. Um, So Churchlands was held by Liz Constable. She held it for many years um, as a disaffected Liberal, but but, but sitting as an independent. And certainly that seemed to suit the electorate. So in one sense, the characterisation of, oh, it's like the North Shore of Sydney actually kind of works because of the Ted Mack effect that was there. Um, Netherlands has been one. Certainly that was uh, uh, Richard Court's seat. He um, held that quite well, relatively easily. Um, but it's also been a seat that traditionally had a lot of university students, um, that is a seat that the Greens always thought they could do rather well in. So it's a seat that um, is interesting. I still don't expect it to go to Labor. Um, but these are seats that could at various times be poached by perhaps the right Green candidate or the right um, Liberal independent. Um, I don't think Churchland's um, uh, Cottesloe uh, and Netherlands will ever go into the Labor column, just as I keep on saying I don't think South Perth will either. Um, it'll perhaps be the place that those independents can make a, a break. But, you know, I haven't seen the high-profile independents, Azali Stegel, if you like, appearing on the horizon of late. So I'm not actually thinking that that's likely to happen. Th- this is what colours my view of how the state election is going to pan out, is that there's um, enough of a Liberal vote, if you like, a residual vote to help retain that. And even if there is a swing to minor parties in these seats, when people say, I'm pissed off for the Liberals, I'm going to go over here because I can't bear the thought of voting for Labor, the vote's going to come back, more or less. So this is why I actually agree that on the night... I think we'll see the swings in the the marginal seats, but marginal seats by their very nature um, tend to, you know, swing less than they might otherwise, except when there's a a big swing on, in which case, you know, it's history. Uh, And the safe seats will be remaining safe, but perhaps we'll see some odd swings there. We saw this in Queensland at the last election as well, some kind of odd swings occurring and Labor suddenly doing extremely well in seats that they already held quite comfortably. So (laughs) we'll see the the wild swings in a a variety of different directions. Um, But Geraldton, Kalgoorlie, those rural seats, actually the ones, or sorry, the rural urban seats, um, regional centre seats, are the ones where Labor can do quite well at this election. So, you know, um, I'm still relatively confident that there'll be some quite serious swings. We'll see it relatively clearly. Yes, obviously, wobbles on on edges. 
and we'll see, uh, well, we'll wait to see what the minor parties vote do. If the Greens vote does not hold up, then it's going to be good for Labor because those votes will transfer straight across. If the Greens vote holds up and the Labor vote goes up, uh, it could be really uh, unfortunate for the Liberal Party. Well, one theory about what might happen that um, I think is quite plausible in terms of where the swings are, you know, when we look at the pendulum, we're we're assuming the swing is the same everywhere. It never is. Uh, and there's a large block, almost it's it's over a quarter of the parliament consists of first-term Labor MPs who won a Liberal seat. Some of them would have replaced retiring Liberals, but quite a few of them would have replaced Liberals who uh, were incumbent MPs who were defeated. So in those seats at the last election, there was a Liberal MP with a personal vote. And in this election, there's a Labor MP with a personal vote. And that's a... That's quite a shift just in itself. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see a bigger swing in those electorates. Labor won more than 20 seats off the Liberals and Nationals at the last election. But once you take out a few seats, the by-election loss and a few seats that they already held that the redistribution had turned into Liberal seats, the like, the, the actual number of new MPs, you're talking somewhere around 17, 18. Uh, so... Yeah, you're talking about a quarter of the parliament in that situation. If the swing is concentrated in those seats, it will strengthen Labor's hold and it will make the task of the Liberal Party coming back look much more challenging. But it may not actually see that many seats swing. And that's the kind of scenario in which I think, you know, Netherlands, Bateman, Churchland's, Cottesloe, uh, you know, you may not see as much of a swing there because the swing will be concentrated in those seats where people got a Labor MP last time and, you know, maybe they're pretty happy with their local Labor MP and you see that incumbency effect concentrated in those that quarter of the, of the state. Yeah, Ben, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, there's seats that were battlegrounds four years ago and as a result had a, a pretty close margin. As you mentioned, they had a Liberal incumbent. You know, I'm thinking of, of seats like... Uh, Seats like Jandicott, for example, uh, that, you know, are held by a pretty narrow Labor margin uh, that the Liberals haven't even really campaigned in at all this time around. So, you know, those seats could go from a a very small margin to a very large margin. And, you know, even some of those seats uh, that Labor picked up last time relatively comfortably, you know, the the Burns Beach sort of territory that are around, you know, six, seven, eight percent. Liberals haven't really campaigned in those at all. So, you know, what were once Liberal seats could, after this election on the pendulum, be very safe Labor seats. Uh, So that does make the Liberal task of, you know, be it in 2025 or 2029, uh, of of defeating this Labor government and picking back the seats that they need, uh, instead of having to do that with small margins uh, in in a lot of different seats. They could be looking at some really substantial margins they have to overturn. Generally in recent WA history, parties are in power for about two terms. It's been a while since a party won a third term. You'd have to say that WA Labor looks good right now, but you know who knows what might happen in the next four years in terms of their chances of winning the, the election in 2025. Um, but Every time that a party comes back into power, the shape of the electoral map has changed, right? You know, some seats that used to be very marginal now will look a lot safer or be out of reach and other seats that had been safe become more marginal. And these trends kind of happen, sub, the subterranean trends that are happening outside of the swinging back and forth that happens every election. And so sometimes you have to look over decades to say, oh, this, this area used to be really safe, and now it's, or sometimes it's more that, you know, this seat 
Labor used to, it was marginal, but they would usually win it. And now it's become safer for the Liberal Party. Um, And I think the next time we have a close election in WA, I don't know when that'll be. Maybe it'll be 25, 29, whatever. Um, The shape of the electoral map will probably be quite different to what it was in 2017. Um, And you could see some places where people... uh, you know, we don't know what those trends are below the surface. You know, we're seeing them on the East Coast that in Melbourne, the Liberal Party has been struggling in areas that used to be really safe for them. I don't know if we might see something similar there where um, some of these surprises, you get a you get an MP who's able to build up their presence over time and it goes along with some handy demographic changes and, you know, a seat that you might think was a fluke result for Labor Um they might hold hold it for twelve years, and when we come out the other end of this period, um, it looks quite different to what it did before. I think that's a really good point, and and one seat that jumps out like that is actually Jandicott. That was uh, the Corrective Services Minister Joe Francis lost his seat there uh, four years ago. That was an eighteen percent seat before the election. Uh, it's Labor now, and you know. Labor's probably going to win it quite comfortably this time around. So it could, you know, in the space of eight years, it could go from an 18% Liberal seat to a 10% Labor seat uh, with very quickly changing demographics and demographics in terms of, uh, you know, sub, new suburbs developing, new people moving in, that sort of thing. So what was the Liberals' strong territory in 2008 and 2013? You're right, it could look very, very different the next time that they're you know, a serious contender to form government. It's, yes, there's been obviously the new suburbs that have been developing in the south of um, Perth and here, you know, Jandicott and the like, um, have been quite remarkable. You know, if, if uh, every time I'm back in Perth, you see a new suburb has, has sprouted, and you're going, my goodness me, you know, they're they're rapidly developing there. Um, kind of what the northern suburbs went through that uh, for a, for an extended period of time, you know, until you actually run out of freeway. Um, and you start to go, okay, it's getting too, almost too far to travel to go to work. I wonder if we are seeing the trend effect that has been occurring in US cities where Republicans no longer win um, the core of the city. That's becoming increasingly Labor. Um, other than, you know, those you know, um, high-value areas, shall we say, you know, the western suburbs of Perth, you know, the eastern suburbs of and North Shore of Sydney, etc. Um, other than those high-value areas, that the cities start to turn, you know, uh, red, as it were, in this case for Labor. Um, and it's in the suburbs that, so those outer, the outer ring seats where there's a multitude of them, um, where the Liberal Party has to win or lose the, the election. And certainly my sense for the last few terms had been uh, that the inner seats, inner city seats were relatively straightforward, but it was on all the margins that things were changing. Um, it's that battle for the suburbs and the suburban vote that has been so critical. Perhaps this election is one where Labor has managed to keep them all well and truly you know, within the fold and the Liberals haven't been able to make any uh, inroads and they'll have to reconsider that. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Stuart and Jacob, for joining me. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Ben. And thanks, Jacob. Thanks very much for having me. You can find the Tally Room Guide to the Western Australian State Election in full, published at www.tallyroom.com.au slash WA2021. The guide features profiles of all 59 lower house electorates and the six upper house regions. 
You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. You can now donate to support The Tally Room in Australian dollars or in a few other currencies. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.